worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. We are super excited for another fabulous case discussion with colleagues from the Cedars-Sinai Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Joining us are Drs. Ronit Zadikani. Dr. Natasha Chuk and Dr. Neil Yuan. Guys, welcome to the Cardio Nerds. So glad you all are here. Would you mind introducing yourselves? I'm Natasha Chuk. I'm one of the second year fellows. I trained at UCLA for both medical school and residency. And after fellowship, I hope to train in electrophysiology. I'm Neil. I'm one of the third year fellows at Cedars. I'm interested in general cardiology with a focus in echo. And I'm Ronit Zadakani. I'm also one of the third year fellows. Really excited to be here. Uh, I trained in internal medicine and did a chief year at Cedars and am planning on staying um, in general cardiology in LA in the future. And we thought it'd be fun to talk about our favorite Netflix guilty pleasures. I love that. We thought that everyone... If we asked, like, what our favorite things to do, everyone would be like, we enjoy going outside and exploring the outdoors, which we all do. So we thought we'd mix it up. (laughs) Uh, So I'll start off with mine. And it's um, Indian Matchmaker. I've been watching it with my husband. We're rooting for Nadia. Go, Nadia. I I haven't watched that, but I'll definitely root for Nadia with you. Go, Nadia. Woo! (laughs) I've been watching The Wire which I realize I'm like 20 years late, but it's still an amazing show and still actually very relevant. And I've been watching a show called Crash Landing on You on Netflix. It's a Korean drama and it's amazing. Natasha, Runeet, Neil, welcome to the show. This is really exciting. You aren't going to get out of the fact that you still have to take us to L.A., And I've actually been to LA. It was actually my honeymoon. My wife was like, we got to go. So we went to LA. It was amazing. LA is such a beautiful place. Take us with you. And what's your favorite jam session in LA? Where's your favorite place to go to relax, to talk about cases? Because I know you definitely do that when you're off work. Bring Ahmed and I with you. 
So we actually are really lucky in that we have a very fun and cool local pub right across the street from Cedar sinai We're in uh, West Hollywood and on a street called Third Street, there is a bar called Third Stop. And we all tend to hang out there, do happy hours. Their truffle mac and cheese is amazing. They have a nice balcony. So there's some COVID friendly spaces nowadays. And this is a local haunt for nurses, techs, doctors, really all the Cedar sinai staff tend to congregate here. And it's a favorite spot of ours. All right, you're on. Let's go to the pub. And I actually, I was really curious where you guys would choose because my in-laws are in Los Angeles and I always love visiting them. LA's got so many terrific spots and places. Actually, I'll say that visiting Cedars was one of my favorite interview days because the program is obviously just terrific and the people were phenomenal. But I got to visit with my two stellar co-residents, Richa Gupta and Ben Kellerman. After what was a terrific interview day, we had some time to kill and we ended up going to Santa Monica Pier and just had the best time, watched the sunset. And it was just such a sweet memory. But today we are uh, sipping on drinks, enjoying ourselves after a long day of great patient care in the third stop. It was the third stop pub? Yeah. And it's actually the place where we take our interviewees during our interview day for fellowship. Oh, that's where we went. I remember that. It was great. <laughs> so we're in the third stop pub. Uh, and let's talk about one of your recent cases. Hit us. All right. So I'm going to be presenting this case that I saw actually during my first year of fellowship that I'm excited about sharing. And we're going to just hit the ground running on this case and present it as it unfolded. And I think this is in line with our general philosophy here at Cedars, which is just to jump right on in. We have our first year fellows take call from the very beginning. So you're holding the semi-pager, you're taking care of the CCU and fielding all the consults from day one, which is very exciting. And you have great backup, but at the same time, you also get to get your hands dirty really quickly. This case starts like many of our call nights often start. So uh, Natasha, um, you get paged on your STEMI pager a code 100 from the ED. So maybe you can first tell us a little bit more about what does a code 100 mean to a CEDAR special? So code 100 is part of our code white system, which is a protocolized system for triaging potential ACS patients in the ED and in the hospital. It was developed a few years ago to help improve the quality of ACS care. And basically anyone can call a 100 for a definite STEMI and then a 200 for a case where they're thinking, I'm not really sure, but I want the cardiology fellow to look at this and activate the lab if needed. And we found that this system really helped improve our door to balloon times and also prevented unnecessary cath lab activations. So like I would do on any call night, I would get a code 100 on my pager and I would just walk down to the ER. Awesome. So Natasha, you're down in the ED and the triage nurse hands you this EKG. So I see sinus tachycardia, a rate of around 125. There's a rightward axis, maybe a suggestion of right atrial enlargement. The thing that's really important here is I see Q waves and ST elevations definitely greater than two millimeters in V1 through V3 and maybe less than two in V4. And there's an ST elevation in AVR as well. I see some reciprocal ST depressions inferiorly and possibly AVL. It's a bit hard to tell because it's a field EKG, so there's lots of artifact and beat-to-beat variation. So as Dr. Steve Shulman would say, guys, the shark's in the water. Yes, the shark is in the water. 
So Natasha, in reference to that, you know, I think we're all thinking here, maybe this is a STEMI. To take us back to CARDS 101, can you just review for us, what are STEMI criteria and do you think this patient is meeting those criteria? So the current STEMI criteria are based on the fourth universal definition of MI published in 2018. A STEMI is basically new one millimeter ST elevations at the J point in any two contiguous leads, except for V2 and V3. So the acceptable degree of ST elevation in V2 and V3 then changes based on your age and gender. So for women, it's 1.5 millimeter. In men under 40, it's 2.5 millimeters. In men 40 and older, it's 2 millimeters. And this, of course, assumes a usual calibration of one millivolt per 10 millimeters. Awesome. And I think you also brought up that elevation in AVR, which we often talk about a lot, and it rings some alarm bells for us. Can you tell us more about that? So in CCU conference, one of our master clinicians, Dr. P.K. Shah, often tells us to look out for an ST elevation in AVR. And that's because ST elevations in AVR can be seen with a lot of uh, serious pathology. So the differential being critical left main stenosis or rarely uh, total occlusion, uh, proximal LAD occlusion, severe triple vessel disease, or diffuse subendocardial ischemia, as you would see with severe oxygen supply and demand mismatch. There's two possible mechanisms and patterns that you're going to see with ST elevations in AVR. And the first is in the setting of subendocardial ischemia. You'll have widespread ST depressions with ST elevations that are reciprocal in AVR. One thing that I've seen before is that AVR can be referred to as the average reciprocal lead to the rest of the EKG since it's opposite to the main vector of the heart. The other pattern would be infarction of the basal septum. The basal septum is supplied by the first septal perforator, so infarction of the basal septum would imply involvement of the proximal LAD or even left main. In fact, in the context of an anterior STEMI, ST elevations and AVR are highly specific for an LAD occlusion proximal to the first septal. Perfect. Wow. First of all, we love that you went to the Cardiology 101. Neil, you're leading this so nicely. It's not about ECG criteria. It's really in the backdrop of cardiology and cardiovascular principles, which make this so much more fun and then bring the ECG criteria to life. I really love that. And then this ECG we'll make available on the blog. And so for everyone's review, and just to note, this ECG has really clear features that we describe, but the baseline is a little bit jumbly. And so that makes people nervous a lot of times. So you're like, bad baseline, get me another one. But sometimes you just don't have that option to get another one with a nice baseline. And so you really have to see these SD elevations and pull them out of the noise and know what's there and what's not there. And this AVR elevation with diffuse ST with depression as a sign of global ischemia, triple vessel disease, or left main disease versus, let's say, a post-arrest or a really severe anemia is such a valuable lesson and a pearl that is often missed because people are sometimes very focused on looking for ST elevations and not putting that whole story together. I personally had this happen to me when I was an intern. Amit doesn't realize this, but I was on service with Amit. We were on the bronchotti service and I was doing the night shift and I admitted a woman who basically came in with chest pain, but had just been diagnosed with achalasia as well within the last three weeks. Her symptoms revolved around when she was eating and I saw the ECG. The emergency room started ACS protocol immediately. I hadn't yet learned about this. I hadn't yet appreciated what a big sign this was. I was thinking about demand and whatever, and I, I didn't really fully comprehend it. 
in my mind, I was like, maybe this isn't even ACS at all. I was signing out to my colleague, who's now an Ankh fellow, amazing guy, Marcus Messner, and he taught me about this. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. And indeed, she ended up going for cath and had really, really terrible proximal triple vessel disease and ended up having cabbage. And uh, so this is a really, really valuable ECG pearl that I'm grateful for that you just shared. Yeah, and along those lines, I'm used to seeing AVR elevation with diffuse ST depressions and other leads as a sign of global ischemia. But here we have AVR elevation with elevation and V1 as well as V2. And so, you know, V1 is a right-sided lead. AVR, R is a right-sided lead. You have to think about a right-sided infarct or injury. And the other thing is the baseline here is wavy, but there are other features that clue us in that injury is happening because there are reciprocal SU depressions in uh, one in AVL, and there are Q waves that presumably are new. We don't have a baseline, but there are Q waves in the same territories. And so our spidey senses are tingling. I'm at the edge of my seat in this pub. What happened next? Great. Thanks for asking. So yes, we're all eager about the clinical story. So this is a 45-year-old gentleman who actually didn't have much past medical history. He wasn't engaged much in medical care but was found by his coworkers slumped at his desk at work. And according to them, he had been complaining of some lightheadedness and dizziness earlier in the day, but you know, hadn't really expressed that much concern. But they found him later on, passed out, so they called EMS. And then when EMS arrived, uh, he was awake, but just complained that he wasn't feeling well. He didn't have any specific symptoms of chest pain or dyspnea on exertion or other ACS kind of red flag. EMS did an EKG in the field, which is the EKG that we just looked at. And as they were transporting this patient into the ambulance, unfortunately, he experienced a bradycardic arrest. And CPR was started, the patient was intubated, and they actually were unable to achieve uh, ROSC during the entire transport. So he actually arrived into the ED with active ongoing CPR. Natasha, you've looked at this EKG, and suddenly this patient comes like rolling in and they're doing CPR. ACLS protocol is ongoing. So, you know, now that you have this EKG in your mind and kind of a brief history, what are you thinking in terms of what's going on? So, just like we discussed with the EKG, the most immediate thing is that this is an antraceptal STEMI. This is something proximal, LAD or left main, and especially in the clinical context with someone who had an arrest and ongoing CPR, that would be my biggest concern. But of course, we have to think of a few other differentials. Every time I go to the ER, I'm always thinking to myself, could this be an aortic dissection? And how do I convince myself that it's not? But typically, if you see a STEMI associated with an aortic dissection, it involves the inferior leads in the RCA. It's possible that it involves the left main, so that's a potential here, but less likely. Always when I hear someone with a bradycardic or a PEA arrest that's very sudden, you have to think of PE. And then going into sort of more... Um, unusual differentials. You, in someone who's younger, um, hasn't had any real history that we've known about, you have to imagine that they could have an undiagnosed congenital disease or defect, something like an anomalous coronary artery. The interarterial course between the aorta and the PA is very high risk for sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. Severe vasospasm can even cause a dramatic presentation in the setting of drug use, potentially. So I might be asking around, can I find information about whether there's stimulants, getting a U-tox. Finally, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection is definitely something to think about in someone in this age group. 
but typically it's characteristically female predominant. Most of the time, actually, when it happens in women, it's involving the LAD. But when it does happen in men, it's actually usually the RCA. So those are kind of the, the things I'm thinking about. Okay. So Natasha, uh, so I'm hearing from you uh, in this young patient who's had a cardiac arrest, who we can't get ROSC on with an EKG that's very concerning for ischemia, that you're really thinking of possible mechanisms that could be causing coronary obstructions. So whether that is a thrombotic cause, like a traditional coronary event, or if there's something else going on that you might see in you know, a younger patient, you mentioned things like an anomalous coronary artery or coronary dissection or things like that. It sounds like you're going to want to take a look at these coronaries. What are you thinking about in terms of your next steps? So I'm thinking the patient absolutely has to go to the cath lab and go immediately. The question is, how am I going to get them there? And I think when we're in refractory cardiac arrest like this, I would call for CT surgery and cannulate for ECMO. Yeah. So, you know, I think that you identified correctly that I think the game here is, you know, survival. And uh, I think one thing that is very nice about being at a place like Cedars uh, is that you really do have the full armamentarian of options here. And ECMO is something that we think about and we often pull the trigger on. So can you tell us a little more about what the evidence is behind ECMO in this sort of situation? So overall survival in this scenario is poor. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in total, something like 6% survival in North America and 9% in Europe. There's a mortality benefit for immediate coronary angiography, and especially in this case with a STEMI prior to arrest. But as we've been talking about, if the patient's in refractory cardiac arrest, how am I going to get them to the cath lab? And that's where eCPR comes in. So eCPR is extracorporeal CPR or the use of ECMO during refractory cardiac arrest and typically employed when conventional resuscitative efforts have failed. The idea here is to restore circulation as a bridge to diagnosis and treatment. There's a potential in using it to minimize or reverse organ damage. And what we're thinking of mostly is the brain neuroprotection and prevent re-arrest by limiting ischemia that would trigger ongoing myocardial dysfunction. So to date, the evidence for eCPR and out-of-hospital cardiac arrests are mostly from small, single-centered studies. There's a systematic review in resuscitation in 2016, and they summarized those single-center studies and looked at 833 arrests across 20 studies. And they found that eCPR was associated with a 13% survival with good neurologic outcome. But all of these studies have very heterogeneous populations, different interventions, inconsistent follow-up. The evidence there is interesting and nominally seems better than the typically reported survival rates. There's more to investigate here. This is all amazing. And the utility of ECMO in the acute shock and resuscitation setting is so vital and really requires that whole armamentarium that Neil was talking about. So there's a lot of interesting evidence coming out in recent years about using eCPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. There's a European registry of greater than 13,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. This is from Paris, and they didn't demonstrate actually that there was a dramatically improved survival with eCPR versus conventional CPR. And this kind of threw everyone for a loop because it's a little counter to the data that people were seeing from before. They ended up finding that survival in their cohort was around 8% in both groups, and there was really no difference in neuro outcome. But they did find on subgroup analysis that there were some things that were associated with favorable neurologic outcome. And those things would be the kinds of things we already think about 
initial shockable rhythm, transient ROS prior to ECMO, and pre-hospital ECMO cannulation. I thought the study was very interesting because it's crazy because they in Paris were doing ECMO cannulation in the field. They had perfusionists and people riding in the ambulances, and then they would actually cannulate people under the Eiffel Tower and stuff, which in my mind always seemed crazy. So, Well, so in this study, actually, they even though they had really short time to cannulations, they were a bit disappointed and they found at least that the subgroups might benefit. So they conclude that there's a real crucial need to identify subgroups that are going to benefit from eCPR. And one reason is, of course, that we're unlikely to alter the outcome of patients who already have suffered like serious neurologic outcome before they're able to um, have mechanical circulatory support implemented. So one way to target MCS efforts is actually to try to use risk stratification tools. Some of them are kind of unwieldy because they require lots of data that we don't always have, like downtime, which we might not know when someone comes in the hospital. But there's an interesting prognostication score that came out just in July in the European Heart Journal. And they looked at 373 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests with a suspected primary cardiac cause. And they developed a risk score based on some predictor variables. They called it Miracle 2. And it stands for all of the different risk predictor variables. So things like unwitnessed arrest, the initial rhythm, whether they were shockable or not, uh, whether they had pupil reactivity, what age they were, less than 60 or less than 80. Uh, if they had changing rhythms, which is a poor prognostic sign, actually, their pH and whether there was use of epinephrine. And this sort of fits with our general gestalt about thinking about what patients might do well. Do they have these factors? Are they young? Do they have a shockable rhythm, et cetera? And they ended up finding that in their low-risk group, 5.6% of patients experienced a poor outcome, but over 92% in their high-risk group actually experienced a poor outcome. So they suggest that maybe the score is going to be useful in the future to characterize subgroups of patients um, where an early invasive approach might not be the best strategy. The important thing I did want to highlight, just taking a step back, as Natasha was saying, and in the case of this patient, when you're looking at these patients that you're evaluating whether to do ECMO on, I mean, you've got to think of what their alternative outcome is. In this case, it's a patient who's been going through the ACLS protocol for 20, 30 minutes, and the comparison survival is going to be very low. So I think oftentimes, you know, if it's the right patient in terms of, is this like a young person who is otherwise really healthy? might have something going on that we can reverse and doesn't have a lot of other comorbidities that we think are going to interfere with management, then despite a lack of consensus evidence, I still think it's worth a shot at thinking about doing ECMO. I think that's often the situation that we find ourselves in. So Natasha, can you tell us what some of the contraindications are to ECMO? Yeah, so we kind of went over what are some favorable factors, but contraindications would be if they had an issue where you couldn't anticoagulate them safely because they need full anticoagulation under ECMO, or if they have some severe limiting comorbidities, so things like an underlying malignancy potentially or their baseline neurologic status being poor that play into deciding where mechanical circulatory support is going to be a bridge to. Is it going to be a bridge to recovery, something more durable, or even transplant? All right, so we're going to go back to the case. As you predicted, Natasha, given the inability to achieve ROSC in this patient and the patient's otherwise lack of known comorbidities, we did cannulate this patient for VA ECMO, and he was taken to the cath lab emergently. 
Uh, I just wanted to kind of chime in here before we go through the angiogram and say that I think this is a really cool demonstration of the way that our fellows uh, get to participate in kind of the front end triaging of critically ill patients like this who come in post arrest. Uh, Cedars has a, a ton of post arrest patients coming in. And in the past year, for example, we've done just about a hundred ECMO cannulations. And the majority of those are actually initiated by the cardiology fellows because we're the front lines. And many of these patients present with a concern for ACS as the underlying cause of their arrest. So we help with the triage process along with the CT surgeons and work hand in hand with them and get to see these patients through their initial presentation to hopefully their eventual stabilization, which I think is a very special experience for fellows. Yeah, and I can't imagine this sounds so impressive. It's one thing to actually put in ECMO, which obviously is a skill set in and of its own, but pulling the trigger on deciding to put in ECMO is equally as challenging. And time is more neurological damage. And sometimes waiting too long, you miss the training. So that's really impressive that as fellows, you are really central to this triage, which has such consequences on the way you take care of your patients. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So next we'll take a look at the uh, the cat films. Ronit, can you maybe walk us through uh, the cat films and describe for us what you're seeing? Definitely. So we're starting here with a right-sided radial approach, and we see the right coronary artery from proximal to distal artery. It looks like a dominant artery. We see the PDA and the PLB, and there are really no high-grade stenoses. We're seeing patency through the entire vessel. The one notable finding is there is slow flow, uh, so it does take more than three cardiac cycles for the contrast to go from proximal to distal vessel, and that all is pretty consistent with the patient's presentation being in shock and necessitating ECMO. So far, nothing as to the etiology. Next, we have left system that we're seeing the left main LAD, left circumflex. This is a cranial projection, so we're not seeing the body of the LAD or distal left main as well, but we're not seeing any high-grade obstructions here either. The vessels look patent, and really that's a good sign, especially given the EKG findings with us being concerned for proximal left-sided disease in the setting of the AVR elevation and the interoceptal ST elevations. So, Interesting, kind of a conundrum with no no obstructive disease that we're able to see here. So yeah, we were surprised that the coronaries were completely clean. And so here's kind of a bit of a twist to the case. We did some things that will kind of become uh, more clear as to why we did them. So so we next actually decided to cannulate the venous system and do a pulmonary angiogram. And I think, Rooney, I'll have you take a look at these films from the pulmonary angiogram. Yeah, and we definitely have to think about a massive PE with obstructive shock as the ideology for this patient's presentation. So it's really nice to be able to get that important data while the patient's in the cath lab prepped and ready for that evaluation. And so we're seeing here in the femoral approach, there's a pigtail in the main pulmonary artery and a significant amount of thrombus in the left proximal PA branches. And then in the next shot, we see that there is also significant thrombus burden in the right pulmonary artery branches. So this is overall consistent with a massive pulmonary embolism, a very serious etiology for the obstructive shock pattern that this patient has and likely why he's presenting the way that he's presenting. And kind of makes sense if we take a look back and reflect on the presentation, some of the other data. Yeah, so piggybacking on that, this was definitely surprising, but as you said, the films are definitely not subtle. There's a lot of clot there. 
I thought we would do exactly that and rewind a little bit and go back to some of the information that we initially had to see if the picture that we saw was consistent with a massive PE to begin with. Natasha, since one of the most prominent pieces of information we had was that EKG, maybe we'll actually take a look at this EKG again. Do you think that this EKG possibly could have been consistent with a massive PE? So usually when I'm thinking massive PE, I'm looking for RV strain pattern and ST depressions and T-wave inversions in V1 and V2, as well as the inferior leads with right axis deviation and sometimes a right bundle branch block. This case has some of those features. So there's a rightward axis, incomplete right bundle. The RA is possibly um, abnormal and enlarged and the inferior leads have ST depressions. But the ST elevations are really interesting. They have been reported in large PEs, anteroceptal ST elevations in V1 and V2. And it actually does make a lot of sense in terms of the vectors. So the RV is very anterior structure. And you can imagine if you get RV overload, dilation, or even ischemia, then those leads are going to reflect that current of injury. Right. So if V1 and V2 are right over the RV, which is the most anterior structure, and you get a significant injury, it makes sense that, you know, you could see some ST elevations in those leads. And then how about, you know, I think I'm remembering back to med school and people always would talk about that S1, Q3, T3 pattern. I mean, it's always referred as very classic, but it's neither sensitive nor specific. Uh, only found in 20% of patients with PE and also just reflects RV strain. All right, perfect. This is really cool because we would expect that AVR elevation with diffuse ST with depressions, as we said earlier, it's basically diffuse ischemia, either triple vessel disease, left main disease, or post arrest for what other cause. So you could, you know, obviously if you're, you have an obstructive shock from a giant PE and poor perfusion and the LV is not, it becomes ischemic globally because again, all that flow is being stopped from getting into the LV and not going up into the coronaries. So you'll still get the same pattern. But what you're saying is that in addition to, is that actually the AVR elevation and the V1 elevation is actually more reflective of transmural ischemia from the RV? Is that what, uh, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's actually, I think, been described in a few reports. And we actually showed this EKG to PK Shaw, who's one of our master clinicians. And, and he does tell us that he actually said like a PE was on the differential. It is something that uh, apparently people do think about with that, with anterior septal ST elevations, although probably much rarer and lower down on the differential, but definitely a possibility. Yeah. And the mechanism being transmural ischemia, either just from subendocardial ischemia that's so severe or very slow flow and, um, and almost an infarct pattern. And when you take that in conjunction with an RV strain pattern and right axis deviation or right bundle branch block, those kind of increase the power of efficacy of you to be able to kind of think in your head that maybe there's something going wrong in the right sided circulation as opposed to that LED left main type of occlusion that we're really typically used to seeing. This is such a phenomenal case so far. And I'm going to take us back to Netflix binging. If, if this was a show, then gosh, what a twist in the plot and a cliffhanger after that coronary angiogram came back negative. And I was thinking as I was hanging off that cliff, thinking about what the next steps would be, my mind hadn't actually gone to doing a PA angiogram immediately. Now it will, thanks to this discussion and this teaching. I began thinking about the causes of ST elevations in the context of negative coronary obstructions. And there's a whole differential there to pursue as well, because 
all ST elevation is a current of injury. That's how we would code it on the EKG. And I've had a couple of patients when I was in the CICU just a month and a half ago when the current of injury was caused by a myocarditis. And so, you know, the coronary angiogram was negative, but there was frank lymphocytic uh, myocardial inflammation. Uh, this is a similar case to actually the first CNCR episode, for example. And then another current of injury could be probably we wouldn't take care of this in the medical CSU, but cardiac contusion from a trauma case, for instance. And then so the non-coronary, non-ischemic injury causes, but then for coronary ischemia, there is a whole host of causes of MINOCA or MI with non-obstructive coronary arteries. This is a situation where it actually looks like a ischemic transmural infarct. You'd have LGE on an MRI. You have the rise and fall of troponin biomarkers. And the differential there would include things like, like we talked about earlier, like vasospasm, SCAD that we missed, or coronary artery that was thrombotically occluded, but then recanalized, more likely to happen with erosion than a plaque rupture, for example. And so, that, you know, like, again, while I was hanging off on the cliff, I was thinking about the causes of ST elevations in this context. And I just, I applaud you guys for, uh, you know, whoever was, uh, had this patient on the table of truth, as you like to call it, for doing a PA angiogram while the patient was still there. And I guess maybe the tip-off was uh, a right-sided current of injury, but it's really a phenomenal turn of events. Yeah. And just to reflect on that RV, you really have a double hit here in terms of the ischemic hit. On the one hand, we know coronary perfusion pressure is your diastolic blood pressure, which is when the coronaries are drinking, minus the end diastolic pressures, or typically usually thinking about the LV, so the LVEDP. And the difference between them is actually the coronary perfusion pressure. Here, you have a real two-hit situation. First of all, your diastolic pressure is intact because you're basically dealing with a patient who's in shock from, again, the pulmonary arteries being totally blocked up and not getting flow to the LV so that we can't support the coronary arteries at all, and not because of an obstructive coronary lesion, but just because of a low flow state. And at the same time, the problem is that you have this giant PE in the PA, and that generates these really elevated filling pressures in the RV. So you have really poor perfusion pressures, particularly in the RV, when you're dealing with a giant PE. So really something uh, incredible and really highlighted here. Yeah, and I'll say that the, the 2019 ESC guidelines highlight this whole pathophysiology of why you get shock and RV injury really well. And I learned just reading about this today that another mechanism of RV injury in this context is that catecholaminergic uh, associated toxic myocarditis. And so patients who are in this situation who've had a biopsy, I'm not sure why you would biopsy, maybe it was PATH studies, but essentially have a lymphocytic inflammatory infiltrate. And they thought that essentially it's because of all that adrenaline as the patient is in shock and maybe from resuscitation actually causes a toxic chemical myocarditis. So I mean, there's so many interesting facets to this case. Yeah, definitely a great catch for the interventionalist to think about doing a pulmonary angiogram and great to have the resources at our disposal where our operators feel comfortable doing that in the cath lab and saves the patient a, a more tenuous trip to CT scanner when they're unstable, they're already there. So it's really useful information to have. I guess we'll get back to the case. So now that we've come to terms with our P diagnosis, Ronit, maybe you can tell us more now about what would you be thinking in terms of your options for treatment of this patient? Yeah, well, the patient's already gotten some of the some of the treatment that he needs in order to maintain hemodynamic stability, uh, namely being VA ECMO. So that was a really good call to, to initiate prior to any sort of transfer to the cath lab, especially in a refractory cardiac arrest. And just kind of as a side note, thinking about VA ECMO and massive PEs, there is some evidence that supports VA 
NVV ECMO in massive PEs causing uh, hemodynamic instability. The ESC guidelines that were updated um, in 2014, they briefly mentioned that ECMO can be used for massive PE as hemodynamic support and as an adjunct to surgical embolectomy, which is essentially the definitive therapy for a massive PE with large thrombus burden. The ACCP antithrombotic guidelines also mention ECMO if there's a contraindication to systemic thrombolytics and um, surgical embolectomy is going to require some sort of hemodynamic stabilization. The CHESS guidelines from 2016 for VTE don't actually mention ECMO in terms of the management of massive PE, but they do mention that ECMO can facilitate stabilizing patients for surgical embolectomy. There haven't really been great RCTs that evaluate ECMO in this context, but case reports and small series do cite benefit, significant benefit for ECMO for massive PE. And in general, when we think about what the treatment is, of course, we know a systemic thrombolysis, directed thrombolysis, catheter-directed embolectomy, or surgical embolectomy. But really, this patient qualifies in every way you look at it as a massive high-risk PE with refractory shock state. And uh, you have to think about surgical embolectomy versus percutaneous embolectomy. And thrombolysis is certainly an option in this patient. But when you think about him having, you know, minutes to hours in terms of how he so significantly decompensated requiring VA ECMO, refractory cardiac arrest. I think the time that you're going to take to get your efficacy and your benefit from thrombolysis is probably going to take too long. There's going to be too much of a delay. So in this particular case, I would definitely have to think about embolectomy either surgically or percutaneously. So surgically, the guidelines say traditionally indicated if submassive or massive PE with contraindications to thrombolysis or in settings where shock is likely to cause death before thrombolysis can take effect, which is this particular case, or for patients who fail catheter-assisted embolectomy. And in terms of percutaneous catheter-directed thrombolysis, which is particularly interesting to us as cardiologists and some potential interventional cardiologists because it's a new, cool, and very effective way of helping patients like this in the cath lab. Basically, the study that really helped this kind of stand out was the Ultima trial in 2016 and in 2013 before that, which essentially used ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis. The most commonly used catheter is called the ECOS catheter. And basically, you direct high-frequency ultrasound with a thrombolytic agent to break up embolus in situ, so in the PA. Oftentimes, that catheter is left in place in order to continuously give off that thrombolytic for 24, 48 hours to try to dissolve that clot burden and really showed some efficacy in the Ultima trial back in 2013. Now, there wasn't an improvement in mortality when catheter-directed thrombolytics were compared to embolectomy and systemic thrombolytics, and that's partially because of the increased risk of bleeding that's associated with this particular intervention. But there was a decreased rate of pulmonary hypertension, recurrent pulmonary embolism, post-PE syndrome, and really it's because you're helping mitigate some of that clot burden. But in a, in a case like this, when we're looking at a very significant amount of clot burden, we got right, we got main PA, we got left PA, I think that catheter-assisted thrombolysis may be difficult to achieve the results that we want in terms of really effectively getting rid of our clot burden and eliminating that obstructive shock physiology. So this would be a patient I would really consider surgical embolectomy to try to help 
diminish the clot burden in a more significant way. We have an operator here, an interventionalist who does specialize in these types of procedures. And he quoted to us when we were talking about it, that in his anecdotal experience, around 20 to 30% of clot extraction is available with percutaneous devices. And in this kind of setting, that may not be viable for this patient. Great. So I'm hearing that despite us having a lot of potential toys that our interventional colleagues could deploy here in terms of catheter-directed thrombolysis, it seems like given the extensive clot burden here and cardiogenic shock, that surgical embolectomy is something that's high on your, your mind. So that is exactly what happened. This patient was emergently transferred to the OR from the cath lab for surgical embolectomy. He was found to have large acute PEs on both sides and actually had a very good surgical resection of almost all of the clot burden. He was subsequently in the ICU. He had been cooled for neurological protection and then rewarmed. But unfortunately, after rewarming, he had a very poor neuro exam and a CT as well as EEG were consistent with severe anoxic brain injury. So sadly, after discussions with family, the patient was transitioned to comfort care and subsequently passed. I'm so sorry to hear that, actually. We've had a lot of programs on the show, and I'm at the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty much confident that almost all of them had relatively good outcomes after the diagnosis was made. And to come here and to highlight a case like this with so many learning opportunities and so many ways to solidify some basic cardiovascular principles and then complex cardiovascular principles is really humbling. And we're honored to have this patient's story on CardiNerds. Yeah, obviously the bad outcome was something that was very hard for us. At the same time, taking a step back and thinking about this patient, these patients are so sick when they come to us and their overall survival rate from the very get-go, given the fact that he had arrested with a massive PE and we were unable to achieve ROSC for, you know, many minutes, you know, their survival is so low and it's true. It's hard because then you question, were these necessarily the right decisions? And it's hard to say because in this case, we did have a bad outcome. But you know, you don't know if you had done this case multiple times, on average, would you end up having a better outcome than not doing it? And that's a question you have to ask yourself. Yeah. And I think that this kind of speaks to so many different learning opportunities and thinking about what types of heroic efforts we're able to utilize and employ in patients like this ranging from VA ECMO to pulmonary angiogram to surgical embolectomy to targeted temperature management and cooling and really pulling out all the stops for this young, previously healthy patient. And sometimes you can't overcome the underlying pathology, but I think it's it's a good exercise for us and a good exposure for us to, to learn from all the different things that we're able to do to try to save these patients. No, absolutely. And I'll just add that a priori, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And you gave this person the best possible chance at survival that you possibly could have. And I just want to take a pause and reflect on how profound this is. And a goal that we have as part of the series is to invite as many people as we can into cardiology. And so we've been asking people, what was your draw to cardiology? Why are you a cardiologist? Why did you decide to join this awesome field? And invariably, it's um, the breadth, the depth, and the diversity, right? And this case highlights so much of that. We get to 
have tremendous diagnostic evaluations, have this huge arsenal of multimodality imaging invasive studies. And this is a prime example of how that came to help us here. We have advanced therapeutic management options from procedures to cutting edge meds. And we get to take care of patients in every domain possible, whether it's outpatient or on the floors in the wards in the ICU in the procedure suite. And I think a big part of a draw to cardiology for many of the people we've been talking to is that connection, the connection with the patient at the bedside and the family. And we deal with the sickest of the sick many times and that end of life care and goals of discussions, you really get to know the family. And we experienced the life of a family member on one of our episodes in discussing a case of fulminant myocarditis in episode 32, when we invited the patient and his wife to talk about their experience. And the patient, Chaz Miller, I can say that because he was on the episode. Chaz, for the most of his, um, thankfully, he did very well and recovered. But you know, for his entire like two month hospital stay, he was pretty much out of it. You know, the experience really was Julie's experience. She was pregnant at the time and her perspective as a family member, what it was like seeing her husband go through all of these things, ECMO, impella, intubation, dialysis, pacemaker. We just learned that we already know that the family becomes your patient in so many ways. And I'm just so glad that you guys were there to give uh, your patient the best chance possible, but also be there for the patient's family and uh, steward them through what was clearly a very challenging situation. Yeah, definitely. We, we tend to see a lot of these cases in our cardiac ICU and as fellows, we're, we're really running our cardiac ICUs. So we, we do have a lot of patients that we have to deal with the end of life and those tough conversations. And when we have limited options left for us, that's definitely one of the harder parts of fellowship and really being a physician in general. But I think probably one of the most rewarding, like you were saying, because we have the ability to really shape and impact that experience, which is an awful experience for patients, for families, but we can do a very big part in making it better. Yeah, I guess the one other thing I want to add is at Cedars, I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword in terms of having all of these options for things that we can do to people, and including things like ECMO and very advanced ways of keeping people alive, because it's great to have these options. But at the same time, I think it's just as hard to also realize when to stop and when it makes sense to take a step back and not proceed with some of the more advanced treatment as well. So as Ronit highlighted, I think we do struggle and engage in these sorts of conversations, discussions all the time with many of the very sick patients that we see in the CCU. And it's a very challenging, but also I think a very fulfilling part of what we do as doctors. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting about going through the evidence is that it's not just for us. Patients and families will understand their medical issues in different ways, and they'll want different information depending on the situation. And it's helpful to be able to prognosticate or to give numbers for people who want that sort of information. Yeah, this is all absolutely tremendous and such an important conversation to have. The care that you all provided as a system, I think is just absolutely exemplary. And I'd love to hear from each of you why you love cardiology and what makes your heart flutter about training at Cedars-Sinai? Yeah, so I think some of the things that were highlighted in this particular case are some of the reasons that all of us are so excited. You don't know what each call night's going to have in store for you, but what you do know is that you have every resource at your disposal. And I think that the high volume is something that 
makes this challenging and rewarding and uh, really kind of like a roller coaster ride through fellowship in that uh, you really see so much of so many diverse pathologies. And beyond that, we have so many different mechanisms at our disposal uh, with our interventional and structural team, with our heart failure and transplant team. Personally, that was my big draw to Cedars-Sinai is such a robust transplant program and all the different mechanical circulatory support that is employed in such an interdisciplinary way with the cardiothoracic surgeons, with the entire interdisciplinary team to really help these patients from A to Z. And you're, you're really trying to not only focus on their cardiac care, but really look at them globally as patients and develop longstanding longitudinal relationships with these patients because you're really seeing them through that whole process. And that that makes the experience really special and gratifying. I agree with Ronit completely. Like I also came to Cedars because of just how much you get to see and you get to do. I think there's one thing about reading and learning about cases from the literature, but there's a whole nother way of learning from really experiencing it and managing these types of cases. And Cedars has no shortage of different types of pathology and different levels of acuity in terms of the patients that we see every day. And a lot of that is, as Ronit highlighted, driven by some of our fantastic subspecialty programs. In terms of our interventional program, we do so many structural cases, it's you know hard to keep track of, but they bring in a lot of patients who are very sick who are here for those structural procedures. And the same thing is true for the heart failure and transplant service. We transplant a lot of people here, and all of those sick cardiomyopathy patients before transplant are also here that we're taking care of. Having all of that volume that gets driven here from those services really makes your learning experience really rich because all those patients also are going to you know, be in the CCU. They're going to need imaging and echoes and consults, so you really get to see a lot of stuff here. One of the reasons I really love Cedars and cardiology is the people. My amazing, brilliant co-fellows, the advanced fellows, the attendings, this is the sort of conversation that we have about a lot of our patients. And there's a lot of complexity with regard to diagnosis and management that we went through in this case, but that we go through for many different cases. And it's just so great to have so many brilliant people weighing in and helping you when you really want to do the best thing for your patient and employ so many different kind of advanced strategies. Yeah. And just to piggyback off what you just said, Natasha, I totally agree. And I think that the autonomy that we get as fellows is something that can initially be daunting and terrifying, just as it was your first day of intern year in internal medicine or whatever specialty it was. But the stakes are certainly higher. And I think that our program, because we get such a high level of responsibility really right away, gives us the feeling that we really, towards the end of our training, feel so comfortable managing so many different pathologies, both bread and butter to complex pathologies, really independently, because we have such heavy-handed instruction and guidance in the beginning, and we really learn how to fly pretty quickly. And I think it's a testament to the academic environment and the leadership and the mentorship that we get from our faculty that really allows us the the perfect balance of autonomy and hands-on training that is great to have in a place that has such high volume. I also just want to put in a plug for another big reason is because 
we get to be in California and in LA. And I know it's totally like a stereotype, but like the weather actually is fantastic here. And there's lots of sunshine (laughs) and we get a lot of access to the outdoors. And the best part is that in times of COVID, we like don't even have traffic anymore. That's also been awesome. Oh, wow. LA without traffic. It doesn't get better than that, guys. And, you know, as a native Californian, I can certainly appreciate that last point. But guys, I'm just totally in awe of your training, your independence, and each one of you as educators. And this discussion so beautifully highlights some of the reasons why I love cardiology. And you take care of patients in every domain, in every stage of life, from early life, cardiovascular prevention, primary prevention, the acute management when it's all hands on deck, you're trying to save a life all the way through end of life care. And I think this is just such a beautiful discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your patient's story. We're grateful to be a platform for thousands to learn from his personal story and how you managed him. And we're just thankful for your time. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for this really wonderful podcast. We listen All of our fellows listen. We love it. And it's especially during this recruitment season, I think it'll be really nice for prospective applicants to get a little bit of a sense of what each program's about. It's such an incredible idea. Our pleasure. And we also have a segment from our eCPR expert discussant, Dr. Babak Azerbal, who's an interventional cardiologist as well as a heart failure, heart transplant specialist here at Cedars-Sinai. We work very closely with him, both in the cath lab, on the cardiomyopathy wards, and in our transplant patient care. Hi, this is Dr. Baba Kasserball. I'm one of the cardiology faculty at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, and it is my pleasure to participate in this podcast along with our outstanding cardiology fellows, Dr. Ronit Zadikani, Dr. Natasha Chuk, and Dr. Neil Yuan. My own personal background is in interventional cardiology, as well as advanced heart failure and transplantation. As such, this case is very near and dear to my heart, as it presents multiple unique and challenging options that we encounter on a not-too-infrequent basis. Before jumping into the specifics of the case, I wanted to discuss a few important disclosures beforehand. First, This was my first time hearing about this case. I was not involved in the patient care. I had not heard about the case in any conferences or peripherally. As such, it's been a pleasure for me going through the case with our fellows' presentations and the host's feedback. And it's been actually an educational experience hearing other perspectives and having a refresher course on management of these patients. It also presented me with the challenge of how to add any meaningful discussion to the outstanding discussion already taking place. I should also add that while this case is very challenging, unique, and presents many interesting points, it is by no means the case of the month or the case of the year at Cedars-Sinai. We are fortunate to be challenged on a routine basis with complex and trying cases which tests our limits of understanding of cardiac disease and challenges to become better clinicians and diagnosticians. Indeed, our fellows are at the forefront of our interactions with these cases. They are the ones who are called first. They are the ones who arrive at the scene. They are the ones who make the initial assessments. And they are the ones that activate the decision-making process. 
Autonomy and supervision are not mutually exclusive entities. While our fellows exercise a large degree of autonomy in the decision-making process, this comes with plenty of supervision, appropriate teaching, and adequate support. In this particular case, we have a 45-year-old male who presents with an out-of-hospital witness PA arrest without return of spontaneous circulation. This symptomatology, background medical history, and clinical presentation offer very few clues as to the ideology of his cardiac arrest. Broadly speaking, in patients who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ROSC, several issues arise that need to be addressed in a very expedient fashion. First and foremost, in institutions that have the capability is the decision as to whether circulatory support with ECMO is appropriate and indicated. And by circulatory support with ECMO, we mean VA ECMO and not VV ECMO. Vino Vino ECMO does not provide any circulatory support. It just provides oxygenation. If the answer is yes and circulatory support with ECMO is undertaken and successful, the next decision facing the medical team is whether to proceed with cardiac catheterization and cornea angiography. The timing also has to be decided. In many cases, it's appropriate to proceed with cardiac catheterization emergently. Coronary atherosclerosis remains the number one ideology for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to the present day. Finally, in addition to resuscitation efforts and correcting any identifiable reversible ideologies of the cardiac arrest, expedient activation of cooling protocols for the purposes of neuroprotection is also essential. All right, now I'd like to switch gears and turn our attention to the specifics of the case from the perspective of a cardiologist slash cardiology fellow encountering the patient and the case in real time. This 45-year-old man with PARS has not achieved ROSC. His arrest occurred while he was being medically attended to, and as such, there was very little time wasted in initiation of ACLS protocols slash CPR. Also has on the one EKG available ST elevations and leads V1, V2, and AVR. This makes coronary ischemia very high on the differential. The way we approach these cases in clinical conferences as opposed to real life are quite different. In real life, we have to make a quick decision here as to whether circulatory support with ECMO is appropriate. If so, this step needs to be undertaken in as expedient a fashion as possible. The time till initiation of circuit is crucial and is probably very important in determining the likelihood of survival and the minimization of neurologic injury. If it takes another hour to initiation of the circulatory support, we probably have not done the patient any favors. As Dr. Chuk discussed earlier, the data as to whether circulatory support with ECMO improves outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests is mixed. However, it is well recognized that minimization of time to onset of circulatory support is associated with improved survival. We have a relatively young 45-year-old male without any known major comorbidities or illnesses who's having a PA arrest with very little downtime and no ROSC. The decision to proceed with ECMO would be considered appropriate. We have to activate the 
ekmotim and waste very little time doing so. Communication is of utmost importance. We have to undertake everything to make sure the time to circuit is minimized as much as possible. In many instances, this includes going ahead, getting arterial venous access to see our surgical colleagues with um, the procedure. Also, this patient has ST elevations in V1, V2, and AVR. Critical proximal coronary artery disease is very high in our differential diagnosis for the etiology of his cardiac arrest. He needs to be taken to the cardiac catheterization laboratory immediately. It is important not to delay activation of the cardiac cath lab. This should not be done after achievement of circulatory support. Activation of the cardiac cath lab should be undertaken immediately, right as we're activating the ECMO team. The majority of the time, especially on weekends and during nighttime hours, it takes at least 30 minutes for the cardiac cath lab to be prepared to accept an emergency department patient. As the theme is emerging, Multitasking becomes very important in these situations. Multitasking effectively is even more important. This takes leadership skills, communication skills, and the ability to delegate tasks to other members of the team. The cardiology fellow or the cardiologist obviously cannot have eight hands or the ability to clone themselves into two, three separate people. We also want to take this time to activate the cooling protocol and activate our neurocritical team while realizing that cooling is unlikely to take place prior to initiation of ECMO circuit and likely prior to completion of the cardiac catheterization procedure. So here we are. We have efficiently and in a time-sensitive manner undertaken all the important steps. We have initiated the ECMO protocol we have activated the cath lab, and we have initiated the cooling protocol. We are assisting the emergency department team with obtaining arterial venous access and with ongoing resuscitation efforts. Here we have the opportunity to reassess the situation and revisit the case as to what the ideology of the PA arrest could be and whether any other potential reversible causes could be identified and treated. Unlike many cases of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest where the initial ideology is unknown and the downtime duration is unknown, in this case we have an exact timeline. The differential diagnosis of ideologies of pulseless electrical activities is relatively finite. Certainly, coronary ischemia is high in the differential. Also, as discussed earlier by Dr. Chuk, the clinical presentation and EKG findings are also potentially consistent with pulmonary embolism. As such, we need to be formulating backup plans in case the coronary angiogram is non-revealing. These could include proceeding with pulmonary angiogram directly in the cardiac catheterization laboratory or performing CT angiogram of the chest. Finally, one by one, we need to be going through the other etiologies of PA arrest and trying to exclude or rectify them as much as possible. Massive cardiac tamponade could be excluded with relative ease with the use of a bedside ultrasound, which is readily available in the emergency departments. Tension pneumothorax is relatively easy to exclude. Hypovolemia, trauma, hypoglycemia all appear unlikely based on clinical presentation and would have been excluded prior to arrival to the emergency department. Hyperkalemia, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, are not suggested by the EKG pattern observed. 
or by the clinical history. But whenever in doubt, correction of these etiologies can be done rapidly and with relative ease. And of course, the key here is that none of these measures is taking any time away from activation of circulatory support, activation of the cath lab, or activation of the cooling protocol period. We're undertaking all these processes simultaneously. Unfortunately, in this case, despite effective treatment strategy and timely implementation, the clinical outcome was poor. These cases are always a humbling reminder that despite all our efforts, we cannot save all of our patients. I wanted to thank the Cardio Nerd Totes for allowing us to participate in this podcast, and we look forward to further collaboration. And now for a message from our program director, Dr. Joshua Goldhaber. Thank you for inviting me to tell you a little bit about our cardiology fellowship at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Cedars, though it's a private hospital, is UCLA's largest teaching hospital and the largest so-called non-university medical center in the West. You've already heard from Ronit, Natasha, and Neil about our legendary clinical expertise and volume in all aspects of cardiovascular disease. Though I'm biased, I think they did a terrific job presenting and discussing the case. And that's no surprise to me because the learning style at Cedars is really what might be called case-based learning supplemented by didactics and reading. Our fellows present and discuss cases at conferences several times each week. It's a terrific way to learn because you never forget these cases, especially when you prepare them. I'd just like to take a minute to describe some aspects of the program that you might not be aware of. We pride ourselves on encouraging each and every fellow to take advantage of extra years of advanced cardiovascular research training funded by our NIH T32 and other available resources and with any of our faculty. This research can be basic, translational, clinical, or health services related. If appropriate, this training can be supplemented by graduate education. For example, several of our fellows have elected to take extra training years on our T32 and obtain graduate degrees at Cedars, including PhDs in biomedical sciences, Master's in Health Policy and Management at UCLA's School of Public Health, or Master's in Magnetic Residence in Medicine at Cedars Biomedical Imaging Research Institute, followed by junior faculty positions at Cedars or elsewhere. These degrees are subsidized by our program. Other fellows come to us with advanced degrees already, and they use the protected research time in their third and fourth years to complete studies leading to NIHK awards. We also offer advanced clinical training in heart failure, transplant, electrophysiology, interventional structural cardiology, women's health and prevention, imaging, and critical care cardiology. We're proud of our flexibility and we encourage our fellows to consider the many different career options available to them, including the powerful combination of advanced research coupled with advanced clinical training in cardiac subspecialties. Finally, we want everyone to know that we recruit broadly not just from the West Coast. Last year's first-year class was 80% women. We've averaged 2.5 births per year among our fellows, male and female, and together with our fellows and hospital administrators, we developed a comprehensive and generous cardiac-specific maternity, family leave, and postpartum return-to-work plan that incorporates convenient and safe lactation while in service. Thanks again for listening to me and to CardioNerds, and feel free to reach out to any of us if you'd like more information. Wow, what an amazing case. 
A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardiNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardiNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardinerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgess are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.